Hi everyone, this is More Than One Lesson. I am Reed Lackey, and I want to thank you for listening. Normally you would hear me as one of three co-hosts, along with Josh and Robert, but this week I'm once again uh, hosting for Tyler as the solo guest host. And I want to tell you this week about a film that has been a favorite of mine ever since I was a little boy when I first saw it, and that is called The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. It's a John Ford Western. John Ford, of course, legendary Western director. And it stars John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart. Also stars Lee Marvin and Vera Miles. It's a film that is somewhat unique in terms of its a little bit more pessimistic theme. And it has an air of cynicism to it. Not completely cynical, but uh, definitely has an air of cynicism about it. But at the time, the big selling point behind it was that it was pairing John Wayne with Jimmy Stewart because John Wayne, of course, one of the pioneer actors of American Western cinema. Jimmy Stewart at this point had beco- had also become known for his Westerns because following World War II, he had made a large string of Westerns, including Winchester 73, uh, The Naked Spur, Shenandoah, a number of others that I'm, I'm escape me at the moment, but Jimmy Stewart had become prominent for some of his westerns, and so pairing the two of them together was a huge selling point. It would be the equivalent of, say, in the film Heat, when Al Pacino and Robert De Niro finally shared a scene together, or uh, to to speculate about a film that might be made today. If you saw an action film that was going to feature Denzel Washington and Idris Elba, um, it, it would, uh, you know, just a major star pairing, a major uh, two, two people who are incredibly famous on their own and well known for this specific genre now finally teaming up together. So the film itself, I can't really talk about what I want to say about it without giving away most of the plot. Um, so if you if you do want to remain utterly unspoiled, then I would recommend trying to locate this film. It is a wonderful, wonderful movie. Um, of course, it was it's from the 60s, so it has an older style, but uh, it's incredibly well-paced. It clips along. Uh, it's two hours, but it feels much briefer than that. And, um, and it's really a very rewarding experience. I will say also that... I personally consider it to be more rewarding upon repeat viewings uh, because when you know the major conceit that is revealed at the end of the film, it can help to uh, help you appreciate some of the subtlety, some of the melancholic tone that happens in the first 30 minutes of the film. So um, it, by all means, if you haven't seen it, I'm about to spoil all of it. So um, just kick back for a few minutes. But if you want to see it, seek it out um, and then come back and join us at that point. So uh, I'll try to keep the plot synopsis as brief as possible. The basic premise is that 
an elderly politician uh, named Rance Stoddard, who's played by Jimmy Stewart, arrives into the town of Shinbone with his wife, Hallie, who's played by Vera Miles. And Stoddard has had a just a profoundly illustrious political career. He was a governor. He was a senator. Uh, he was an ambassador. Uh, then back to the Senate, he is a candidate for vice presidency, um, or at least on the short list for vice presidency. So he's had a, a remarkable and very well-respected career. So when he arrives into town, uh, the, the local reporters are shocked and surprised to why he would be at such a remote uh, ranching town, a, a frontier town. And they discover that he is there to attend the funeral of a man named Tom Donovan. Tom Donovan uh, is played by John Wayne. And uh, Stoddard is there to attend his funeral, but this piques the interest of the reporters, because why would such a noteworthy politician be arriving to celebrate the funeral or to pay respects to the man uh, who was virtually an unknown? So the bulk of the film is the flashback that tells why Rance Stoddard and his wife Hallie are here uh, celebrating the life of a man uh, that was virtually unknown to the rest of the world. And the story is as follows, that Rance Stoddard, when he was a young, idealistic attorney, he made his way into the town of Shinbone, and his stagecoach was robbed, where he tried to stand up, unsuccessfully tried to stand up, to a bullying, thuggish, brutish outlaw named Liberty Valance, played by Lee Marvin. So uh, Rance Stoddard tried to stand up to Liberty Valance, but got beaten half to death for it and left for dead. Uh, he stumbled upon by Tom Donovan, who brings him into the town of Shinbone for his wounds to be tended by Hallie, who runs uh, an, a diner slash bed and breakfast uh, with her family. Uh, Stoddard is... Of course, very grateful that his that he's been rescued and that his wounds have been tended to. So he uh, sort of helps try to make recompense by washing dishes for Hallie and her family and helping them to wait tables. But he's bugged by the fact that Liberty Valance basically got away scot-free. He's an attorney, and so he's desperate to see the law and law and order uh, justified, justice served, as it were. But the local marshal named Link Appleyard, which I think is quite the name, played by Andy Devine, uh, he's a buffoonish, very sort of silly character, lacks any degree of charisma or commanding presence. And, and so he doesn't want to confront Liberty Valance. He doesn't want to even try to arrest him. And Tom Donovan, again, John Wayne, uh, says that really Liberty Valance is the toughest man in all the territory, except for him, except for himself. There's one great scene where uh, Rance is waiting tables and Liberty Valance is there. And Liberty Valance... Uh, trips Rance, and when he trips him, uh, causes plates to scatter all over the floor. And Donovan, uh, again, John Wayne, Donovan stands up and confronts Liberty and almost makes him pick up the stake himself. It's a, it's a great scene. It's a very tense standoff kind of scene. And so when that happens, it causes Rance to recognize that even though he really is a man of law and he's a man of order, uh, he needs to be prepared that a man like Liberty Valance is not going to be swayed by that. 
that uh, he's really going to need to learn how to use a gun if he wants any chance of, of trying to defend himself. So he tries to do that, um, but he does so in a covert manner. He doesn't want everybody to know what he's doing. Following the confrontation with Donovan, uh, Liberty Valance leaves town and is not seen for weeks. And while that's happening, uh, Rance's uh, mood and enthusiasm is bolstered by the fact that Hallie and several other members of the town want to learn to read and write, and they want to have a basic proper education. So Rance opens a small school where he teaches them all of those things, how to read, write, how government works. And then after that's gone on for a few weeks, Tom Donovan returns from a long cattle drive with the unfortunate news that Liberty Valance has been trying to recruit some local cattle ranchers as a kind of a hired gun scenario and that he's going to return and he's going to try to wreak havoc on the town of Shinbone and particularly try to uh, hunt down Rance Stoddard. Now, underneath all of this, there is the vote for this particular state. We don't ever really know the state that they're in. It's in the West, but we're not sure if it's Montana, if it's New Mexico. We're not sure. And uh, so this state, whatever it is, is about to vote on becoming one of the United States. It's just a territory right now, but they're going to take a vote to see if they want to become integrated into the United States. And they need delegates to represent them. And... The cattle ranchers don't all want to become state. They don't want to become a state. So they kind of recruit Liberty Valance to step in and try to undermine these proceedings. But, of course, uh, Rance Stoddard is uh, elected as the delegate for the town. And this causes a further confrontation with Liberty Valance ultimately ending up in Liberty, uh, trashing the newspaper office, beating almost to death the newspaper editor, and then challenging Rance to a, a late-night duel, as it were. Rance uh, sees that he doesn't really have very much choice, so he decides, uh, after pained deliberation, to meet Liberty Valance on the street, And at first, Liberty's just toying with him. Um, He shoots at his feet uh, and then finally shoots him in the arm. And then after he's had enough sort of fun with that, he says, "Okay, the next one's going right between your eyes. But to everybody's surprise, Rance fires first and Liberty is dead. So it's immediately followed that. Uh, Rance is seen not only as a man of law and order who brings uh, tremendous education and tremendous dignity to the town, but that he can also defend himself and that he is single-handedly responsible for ending the, uh, the evils of the bullying and brutish Liberty Valance. Now, right after uh, this confrontation with Valance in which uh, he, he died, he was shot, Uh, Tom Donovan arrives and sees Hallie, who I forgot to mention that uh, Donovan is in love with Hallie, and he's building on a room to his house so that he can ask her to marry him. And he sees when he arrives that she genuinely cares very much for Rance, that her time uh, learning to read and write under Rance has caused her to, to care for and even to love Rance. 
And so Donovan is very distraught by this. He's also distraught that he arrived uh, too late to to do anything about Liberty Valance. And so in this drunken fit, he goes back to his home. He you know sets fire to the additional room that he had built onto his house for Hallie and, and is, is deeply very distressed. Well, meanwhile, Rance uh, continues this path towards his political career, but he's tormented by the fact that his popularity now hinges on the fact that he killed a man. That's just not how he operates. It's not how he wants to, to go down in history. Um, so he's, he's troubled by this. And eventually, when that very fact is made a point of debate, uh, in the vote to elect him as a delegate, uh, he exits and he's about to resign and go back east and just pretend he'd never heard of the place called Shinbone. So as he's doing this, as Rance is about to leave and exit his political career, he's confronted uh, by a very haggard and rough looking Tom Donovan who tells him, and this is the big conceit of the film, which you could probably see coming, who reveals to him that he, Rance, uh, did not shoot Liberty Valance, that in fact, at the same moment that Rance fired his gun, which clearly would have missed wildly and and he would be dead, uh, Tom Donovan was waiting off in an alley uh, and killed Liberty Valance uh, at the same time that Rance had fired his gun. So Donovan is really the man who shot Liberty Valance of the title, but everyone in the town and everyone in the territory thinks that Rance is the man who shot Liberty Valance. So with his conscience clear that he did not actually murder the man, um, Rance decides to go back and to continue to pursue this political career. Donovan kind of commands him to by saying, you know, if you don't do this, then, then the whole reason why I did everything will be for nothing because Hallie loves Rance and Donovan loves Hallie and he just wants to see her happy. And so he said, you taught her how to read and write now go give her something to read and write about, which is uh, a pretty poignant statement. So that, that concludes the story. The rest is history for, for them. And at this point that Rance has been telling, again, we're back in present day. Uh, Rance has been telling the reporter about the truth of the man who shot Liberty Valance. And the reporter takes his pages and pages of notes and rips them up and throws them in the furnace. And then he says, when he says, this is the West, sir. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend and leaves it at that. So uh, in the conclusion of the film, we get the impression that Rance is going to retire from politics, that he and Hallie are going to come back to Shinbone and settle, and maybe he'll do some local law, uh, do some, live a much quieter sort of retired life. And that's, that's how the film ends. The final moment in the movie, though, is, is, is pretty, pretty melancholy and, uh, and quite poignant. Uh, because the train conductor, who's very impressed and, and very delighted to have the respectable Rance Stoddard on his train, um, he tells him that he'll make any accommodations that are necessary because nothing is too good for the man who shot Liberty Valance, um, which, of course, causes Rance to pause and uh, reflect with great sorrow uh, about the reality of the situation. So it's a film that, of course, uh, is touching on a, a wide variety of different themes, one of the most prominent being 
the narrative that we choose versus the narrative that happened. And I have some conflicting thoughts about this that I want to unpack for you in the next few minutes. The statement that the reporter makes that when the legend becomes fact, print the legend, it struck me in this current climate we're living in, and I won't speak too much about this, but this current climate we're living in where I feel that media is frequently under scrutiny. Um, we've we've recently heard the the calls of fake news and how much can you trust the media. Um, there is an idea that the media is purely perpetuating false narratives, and there seems to be a profound distrust of the media. And so it was fascinating to watch this film with that current climate in the in the sort of back of my head, because this is a case where, yeah, the, for years, uh, I mean, a man built his entire political career through which it is given the great impression that he has done a lot of good, uh, that he himself is just a genuinely good man and has done a lot of good with it, but he has predicated his entire political career on a lie. Uh, because he became respected as the man who shot Liberty Valance, and he did not shoot Liberty Valance. And even more tragically than that, Donovan, who actually saved Rance's life, uh, did not get the girl, did not get the glory, died. We get the impression he died alone and lonely, and uh, that he just spent out the rest of his days uh, in in his you know closed-off little hovel uh, his cattle drive his work his his helper who's named uh, Pompey uh, they they just lived a quiet life from that point and that he uh, had essentially made these two people uh, very important and he had propped them up by his secretive self-sacrifice and it touches on some complicated emotions that I have because obviously as a believer we cherish truth and we cherish honesty and it's something that I've, I've never been one to really buy into the idea of a greater good through dishonest uh, means uh, that even though a lot of good took place from something if it was founded on uh, deception or if it was founded on a lie then is it still really good is it still is it still a good thing that has happened and it's a complicated question it's something that is troubling when you get right down to the meat of the history of things. But it's also something that poses some interesting questions when we think about historical narratives, when we think about biblical narratives, when we even think about personal narratives as we look back on trying to reflect on what it was that happened in any given story that we're remembering or reflecting on. What was it that happened? And that line, which is a, a pretty famous line, you may have heard it before, uh, you know, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend, is an active choice to perpetuate a narrative that you know to be false because you know or believe that that narrative is the most important thing, the most vital thing. And something that I that it makes me think of from a scriptural perspective 
is I have always been fascinated and at times haunted and troubled by the story of Jacob, Jacob in, in the book of Genesis. He eventually became Israel, and uh, from his 12 sons, they were the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jacob, uh, you know, became the, the nation of Israel, as it were. But in his life, he uh, was called, you know, his name meant Jacob, meant supplanter or deceiver. And there's an incredible amount of deception, both him being deceived and him deceiving other people in his story. And the most prominent example of that is when he stole his brother's blessing, his brother's birthright blessing, uh, by when his father Isaac was growing old and it was time for him to bless his son. Esau went out into the wilderness to kill an animal and to prepare it the way that his father liked. But meanwhile, Jacob, sitting nearby uh, with his mother's help, he uh, killed an animal, prepared it, brought it into his father. And there's a passage of scripture that I want to bring in right now, and I'm going to loop back around to the man who shot Liberty Valance as I'm kind of exploring this topic. But when Jacob is approaching Isaac, pretending to be someone else, um, verse uh, I'm looking in Genesis chapter 27, uh, beginning at verse 21, it says, Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come close that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. And verse 22 stands out to me pretty prominently. It says, So Jacob came close to Isaac, his father, And he felt him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Because at that point, Jacob had taken goat skins and covered them, uh, covered his arms, which, by the way, how hairy do you have to be that like goat skins are the (laughs) are are what causes you to, uh, you know, to for somebody to think that you're someone else Uh, just. Man, Esau must have been a very hairy man. But uh, I'm I'm thinking about this phrase, and I, I love metaphors. I love thinking about metaphors. I understand the context in, of this specific phrase, and it doesn't mean anything more than it really means, but it fires off some things in my brain that make me think about it more. This idea that the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And... I know that in the context of this story, it very literally means that Jacob is trying to decide which of his sons is speaking to him because it sounds like Jacob, but feels like Esau. But it causes me in light of this film to reflect on certain ways that we engage with the world around us and that we engage with our own personal narratives and our own personal understandings of history and our own personal understandings of of the events of the scriptures, the events of the Bible. Because I think that there are, as best I can explain it, there are basically three elements at play in any given interpretation of an event. There is the First of all, the cold, hard facts of what happened, the the blunt, uh, no respecter of persons, no respecter of emotions. This is what happened. That's one element is just the factual occurrence, the factual events at play. The second thing is uh, why did these 
why did this event take place? What brought us to this point? There's a recent show that I think uh, was was surrounding this entire idea or this entire question mark called American Crime, where it seemed like they were far more interested in how we get to a point of great crime taking place uh, rather than just trying to explore it in an aftermath scenario. They were very interested in what sequence of events, what conversations, what chance occurrences led us to this pivotal thing. So first we have the cold hard facts of of an event. Secondly, we have what brought us to this point, the causality. What does this all uh, mean or add up to? And then the third thing is what I'll call uh, bearing witness. The third thing is as I'm watching, if I'm seeing something from a from an objective perspective, standing outside of the actual events and I'm looking in on it, I'm going to have a certain interpretation of what I think I'm seeing. I'm going to be reading tone of voice. I'm going to be trying to understand motive. I'm going to be trying to get inside the heads of the, of the characters of the people that I'm seeing. Um, so you have the cold hard events of a case. You have what brought us to this point, and then thirdly, you have the bearing witness, the the interpretive uh, events. And in light of the events of the man who shot Liberty Valance, where, you know, when the legend becomes fact, you print the legend, in light of reflecting on that in conjunction with this scripture, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hand is the hand of Esau, I wanted to say that it is entirely possible that we may see a thing or experience a thing or hear about a thing and have an immediate emotional reaction to it or have an immediate sort of um, drive. It may compel us to act. It may uh, frighten us and force us to retreat. It may inspire us. It may frustrate us. It may uh, infuriate us. We see things take place in the news. We we see, uh, as we're scrolling through Facebook or social media, we see uh, snippets of a clip, uh, often taken wildly out of context, but we'll see in, in passing uh, a report out of an event. And we have a tendency to build for ourselves a narrative, to build for ourselves some interpretation of that event, and, and we factor in things that we don't really have much control over. We, we take into account some facts, but facts that don't conform to the narrative that we've built in our head, we're just going to cast them aside. We're just going to thrust those aside, because what's really important is this, this narrative that we're building, this narrative that we're leading towards. So getting back to the context of the film, uh, it, it doesn't really matter that Tom Donovan uh, is the man who really shot Liberty Valance because Rance is the politician. He's the one in the short term. He was the one who was going to make Hallie happy in the long term. He was the senator who had done such incredible good work. And so at that point, it, it didn't really matter in the large scheme of things that Tom Donovan was really the man who shot Liberty Valance. I mean, it matters, but that's what I'm saying is that it did not fit in with the narrative. It didn't substantiate the narrative. And I think that we must be very, very careful. We must be very cautious. We must be willing to question our narratives. 
we must be willing to take a step back and question the narratives that we've built up in our head. Those narratives may be any number of things. They may be something as broad and as immediately controversial as this race of people are dangerous or uh, this type of person is always going to act in this type of way. If they look a certain way, then they are going to act a certain way. If they have a certain belief, then they are going to automatically believe several other things. I experience this a lot as a Christian, where the moment that someone finds out that I am a Christian, they automatically presume that they know how I feel about every major social and political issue. And that can be challenging because they're frequently wrong. Um, but it's something that we have to be willing to to challenge the legend, as it were, to challenge the narrative that we've built in our head. We can, if we are not careful, we can actively reject, openly reject the facts of what has happened or what is happening for the sake of the narrative that feeds the feelings, that feeds the what we believe to be an understanding of the socio-political events. So we have to be willing to challenge that narrative. And the other thing that I think we have to be willing to do is we have to be willing to examine and confront our own intentions. And here's what I mean by this. This will tie directly into the scripture. That when, the, when I read the scripture, the voice is the voice of Jacob's, the hand is the hand of Esau's. And as I said earlier, I know the context for what actually is happening. That is Isaac trying to find out which of his sons is speaking to him and engaging with him. But when I think about that, I think about all of the times when someone is possibly out of pure intention, is trying to do something that they believe to be right or good, but despite the fact that they believe it to be right or good, they are actually doing more harm or they're fostering a dangerous, perpetuating a dangerous notion. They may be actually doing more harm than good, even though their intentions may be genuinely quite good. In those instances, that's what the, that's what the language evokes in me in terms of metaphor, that Maybe when one person is is trying to to do a thing, uh, you would say that was the voice of Jacob's, that the, this is their intention, but their intention may not be matching the end result, that uh, what they're intending to do may be something dramatically different than what they are actually doing. The voice may be the voice of Jacob, but the hands may be the hands of Esau, that when someone feels the need to call out uh, some uh, the the frailties or the shortcomings in another person's life, they may be intending to uh, try to challenge or convict this other person or spurn them on to good works. But in reality, they might be fostering condemnation. They might be making this person feel ashamed. They might be making the person in, in the name of trying to help them or goad them into good works. They might be making the person feel more and more worthless. Um, let's get it out of the religious arena for a second. Um, someone may be simply trying to in in a political ideology or in a political spectrum something someone may be simply trying to do the right thing from their perspective but 
then in actuality, they may be fostering something more dangerous or fostering something uh, more destructive in the world. And, and in the name of compassion or in the name of open-heartedness might actually be uh, dispelling standards or they might actually be uh, just revoking any sense of structure and order and again might be causing something far more destructive and dangerous. So where I'm going with this is that sometimes the intentions that we have do not align with the end result. They don't align with the ultimate effect that we're having on the world around us or that we're putting forth in the world. And a lot of times we can, because of the narratives that we've developed for ourselves, because of the revoking and ignoring of factual evidence to the contrary, because of our tendency to print the legend um, when the legend becomes a fact, we have a tendency to um, just continue in a path even if we recognize that path to be destructive, uh, we feel like we've gone too far down the line and we feel like we're, we're unwilling to repent. We're unwilling to turn. We're unwilling to cast aside what we then discover to be a destructive and dangerous path uh, because we, we, we're already invested in this narrative. We're already invested in, well, this is the way it is. Uh, this, this is what the this is what the republicans are doing this is what the democrats are doing uh this is what the other is doing this is what this other group of people this is what the gays are doing this is what the muslims are doing uh, you know insert whatever term you need to into the the other that you would put forth and when that narrative gets far enough down the line you may in fact be trying to do something you believe to be good or do something you believe to be helpful or do something you believe to be wholesome and instead be causing more destruction, causing more devastation, causing more harm than good. So I, th these thoughts are a bit rambling. I, I feel like they are uh, struggling to uh, be cohesive. So I'll try to bring it around with just this one sort of final thought and then say goodbye. We have to be very, very cautious of printing the legend. We have legends in our head. We have narratives in our heart. Um, things we believe about other races, about other genders, about other cultures, about other people, about other political ideologies, um, about the other on the other side of the fence. And when we print the legend and when we ignore the facts in the case as they're brought to us, uh, then we're in a very dangerous place. We are in a place where uh, we will then begin to make choices and it will be divided like, uh, like a voice of Jacob with hands like Esau. And we will lose hold of what our ultimate goal is, of what our ultimate ends should be. As I'd mentioned, there is a very sort of pessimistic uh, element to the theme of the man who shot Liberty Valance, because while indeed Rance Stoddard is a good man, Jimmy Stewart uh, delivers a wonderful performance, and while Rance is a, is a good man who has done good work, it's clear that he deeply regrets and feels a deep sorrow, uh, even at the end, about the fact that it was all built and predicated upon a deception, and that... 
now at this point, it's too far down the tracks, even in his telling of it, even in his unburdening of, of it uh, to this reporter. The reporter rejects that notion and decided to still print the legend. And um, there's a real sadness and a real sorrow that accompanies that reality that we have a tendency uh, to simply ignore the fact and print the legend. And to not further ramble, um, I think I'm going to leave it there. And I'm going to ask that each and every one of us uh, take a step back. And and before we share that thing on social media, before we continue to foster that notion among our coworkers, before we continue to perpetuate these notions from our pulpits, whether those pulpits be inside of a church or from our living room, uh, before we begin to or before we continue to perpetuate these narratives about the others among us, Um, I would encourage us to examine the facts. I would encourage us to to do a bit more research, to uh, try to get inside the shoes and inside the experiences of someone uh, with whom we might initially not agree or with uh, with whom we might initially not quite understand or maybe even be a little afraid of. And we should try try to understand them better and try to know more where they're coming from, what their experience is like, and try to listen and try to hear and try to understand uh, what it's like for them on the other side. So um, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is a, is a phenomenal film. It's got a wonderful performance by, uh, wonderful performances by Lee Marvin, John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, Vera Miles. Uh, they're all excellent. Even the cast of supporting characters are really wonderful. It's paced very, very quickly. Uh, as I mentioned, it's about two hours, but uh, it just clips along. It'll it'll practically be over before you know it. It's very propulsive narrative. Um, and... Uh, I think it's a very rewarding film, but it's also a very challenging and provocative film. And it certainly made me think quite a bit, even in some ways that I don't quite have answers or resolutions to yet. Um, But I hope you've enjoyed this brief exploration of a film that I think deserves some further consideration, some further examination. If you have anything that you uh, would love to say about this topic or love to say about this film in general, then feel free to leave a comment on this post. And uh, we will be back with uh, a regular formatted episode. I think Tyler is going to be back with us next week. So uh, thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.